Welcome to another episode edition of the Black Cats Run podcast. If you've gotten this far into the podcast and you've listened to all the episodes um, and you've enjoyed or found it at least thought-provoking to listen to what uh, we've had to share on here, I hope that um, you consider going and, and checking out and following the Instagram at Black Cats Run for the podcast that we set up um, the other day. It's just there to be a space so that um, if there's interest among people listening, they can uh, you know let us know what topics they would be interested in hearing about, questions they have, points of view that they want to see better represented. So please feel free everybody's welcome to come over and uh, join that space. All right, today we're starting a new episode. This is going to be episode three, Learn to Fly. In this episode, the overall theme and focus is going to be trying to understand the importance of feelings in the sport of running and the sport of cycling and endurance sports in general too. You know, sometimes I have these very vivid dreams of um, swimming. And as I'm swimming, I'm somehow like flying through the air. And I know that I'm swimming because I'm doing a swimming stroke and because in the dream, I'm breathing in uh, water. So, right, it's a dream, it's whatever, right? But somehow I'm flying through the air but while I'm swimming, but I'm also somehow like underwater, even though I'm not underwater, and I'm able to breathe the water. Only it's not like drinking water, it's like breathing in this like golden feeling of awesomeness. And sometimes... I kind of have a feeling that's a lot like that in training. And ironically, this is something that is most likely to happen when it rains. And some of the people that I work out with and exercise with have, I think, come to notice that if it's raining, it's likely that I'm going to start feeling way better than I usually do. And it's a powerful and exhilarating feeling and it can happen running or it can happen on the bike. And I, any opportunity I have to exercise when it's raining is awesome. For me, that's like peak conditions. I did the Millinocket uh, marathon in Millinocket, Maine up by Mount Katahdin uh, at the beginning of December this year just kind of as a bit of a lark. And it was like 45 degrees, um, which I thought was actually great for December in that part of Maine. I thought it was pretty mild, but it was overcast. Um, it was foggy and it was raining and it just started raining more and more. And, uh, you know, my brother also did it and he did the half marathon and he won and set the course record. And they started behind us, the, the smaller group of people who were going to do two laps to do a marathon. 
And of course, he came, you know, blowing by me at about nine or 10 miles. And um, when I came through the start finish line to go do a second lap, you know, he was on the side and he said, oh, are you going to be done? And I said, no, I feel good. Um, and I'm like, why wouldn't I, right? To me, this is apex conditions. This is what, this is awesome. I feel like a million bucks. And afterwards, you know, Strava is so cool because you can see some people will post and talk about that. And some people commented on his activity and they're like, well, I hope you beat the rain. And um, at rallies, I don't think anybody beat the rain because it was raining by about 40 minutes in to the race. And like, but then you start looking at other people's activities in the flybys and like lots of, con- oh, the rain, and there's like a lot of negative comments about the rain. And it's so strange to think about that, right? The way people are feeling about and experiencing their feeling of exercise based on that kind of condition. Whereas for me in my bubble, I'm like, this is ideal. Like, this is incredible. This is what I, I want. You know, I, we'd also done the Marine Corps. Well, I had done the Marine Corps marathon too. And to be honest, and you know, partly due to like limitations from some sort of like injury type stuff earlier in the year, I hadn't really been able to build into the kind of like fitness and preparation that I would like to do if I'm going to go do a race like that. But over the years, I've shifted my mindset. And this kind of relates to the theme of this episode too. I've shifted my mindset to like, I can go out and I can run to the best of my fitness at any given time. And that it's okay that sometimes my fitness is going to produce a time that a part of me really wants to like not be associated with still because I feel like it's embarrassing. And what I've you know been working on telling myself and shifting my perception about this stuff is, you know, I went out and I made the most of my fitness and that's what matters. And if you know how to do that and then your fitness changes, you'll just run better times or you'll have better results on the bike, you know, and you'll be making the selection on the bike. And you just have to go out and you have to be willing to, to make the effort. And, you know, running adds this dynamic where, and kind of like gravel racing and cycling does too now, where, you know, you might not have the fitness to be in that front, the front of the race, but you can still go and have a meaningful, worthwhile experience. And that same thing is true with gravel is because there's so many people out there, it's not about okay, once I'm out of the Peloton, there's no point. Or if all I'm going to do is scramble to keep up in the Peloton the whole time, maybe there's no point going to do that, right? Do I want to really want to drive all the way to a race and pay, you know, the money for the gas and the money for the entry fee, you know, to do that if, that, if I'm just going to be busting myself to keep up at the back of the group, you know, and not get dropped, right? Is that really worth it for us? But that feeling of, you know, power, you know, and just feeling strong and, and like, it's not that you don't feel tired. And I think it's, it, to me, this is not, you know, what people call like a runner's high. I think we're talking about something different because it's a very, it's a state of like, you know, being in the zone. It's kind of like a flow state. If you think about flow psychology, where 
you know, these things have come into equilibrium for me and I'm leaning into the intensity. And as the fatigue is accumulating, I'm not losing my ability to manage that stress, right? It's, you know, it's not necessarily that it feels easy, but it's that the fatigue and the suffering and the intensity of the work is still there, but I feel primed to engage with that. And one of my theories is, you know, what it feels like subjectively, like in the dream, is it feels like I'm breathing in this different substance than just regular air. You know, I've sometimes said it's like, it's like when it rains, it feels to me like there's more oxygen in the atmosphere. But I also think maybe a better, more re- reasonable, realistic explanation would be to say that I think when it rains, it's bringing down my core temperature. And, you know, I'm not a, although now I'm not a super lean athlete, you know, at one point when I would, had done my probably objectively fastest running, I was 143 pounds and I'm about five foot 11. And now I'm about 185 pounds. You know, I mean, it, you come to realize that the stuff varies right throughout the year, etc. And most of that weight gain has just been muscle mass. And then, you know, obviously, as you become move further into adulthood, right, your body just tends to get a little bit bigger anyway. But, you know, I still use the same number of notches on the same belt that I had in college, but I've gained all this mass. So, you know, a lot of that is muscle mass. And a part of that, I think, too, is like my body's response to cycling and to exercise in general has been more of a hypertrophic response with muscular development. And I think that additional mass causes us me to produce more work. And I, uh, my brother is like 165, 163 pounds, but he's six foot four. So he's super lean. Um, and actually both of my brothers are six four. So go figure that being the oldest sibling and then having both of your, your younger siblings being almost half a foot taller than you is kind of, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a disappointment, I suppose, although I don't really care because we don't play basketball, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) So, but we were talking, um, about how, you know, as a, bigger athlete, even though he's pretty lean, he still produces a lot more power. And because he's doing more work, is that producing more basically heat, right? Is that like basically more energy, right? If watts are energy and you have to produce more watts because you're a bigger person, you know, it's not just the body weight, but it's also that coefficient of drag on the bike, you know, more surface area. Um, And it's his style to go and, and ride hard and put the hammer down anyway, which just adds to that. But as a bigger athlete doing more work, you know, are you also producing more heat and are you therefore maybe going to be more heat sensitive, you know, not, and there's other factors that can probably affect that, but it's just the act of having to do more work as a bigger athlete going to contribute to that, you know, and a part of me feels like I've always been struggled in the heat. And I think to be fair, like it's pretty normal to struggle in the heat. And I think a part of it is like how we talk about sport. A lot of people don't want to talk about or describe things being hard, so it can create this illusion that some of us struggle with certain things, where maybe it's like everybody struggles with a common set of things, but we just can't see that because we don't have a norm of talking about that stuff in the dialogues we have about sport. 
And for me, I think that, you know, being a, you know, having become a bigger, more muscular athlete, at least for endurance sports, um, although I don't, to be honest, I don't really look like I'm, you know, this huge muscle bound, you know, hybrid athlete or anything like that. Um, but that's because muscle is pretty dense, you know, and it does it, it takes up more weight than it does actual physical space. So what I'm experiencing and I've come to associate is that certain conditions I know are going to affect how I feel. And I've learned through experience to intuitively accept that. And that's working with how my body feels to recognize certain conditions as being more likely to bring out the kind of feeling good experience that we're saying in this podcast is opening the door to really performing well and having a good experience um, with the process of doing sport and training overall and being sensitive to those conditions versus this idea of, you know, reducing it to the level of algorithm and steamrolling this. And I think this can happen in other ways too. You can start to develop this feeling. So I had the flu, um, which was as fun as it sounds. And I'm pretty stubborn. So I kept going out and exercising and doing, you know, at least an hour run and an hour ride on the trainer um, basically every day. But I just, you know, accepted the fact that now I'm going to be going wicked slow. And, you know, as much the concept is like as much for the benefit of that nervous system, you know, as anything else is because I know it's going to feel a lot harder if I just don't do anything. And I also think that sometimes we value being sedentary. I mean, the idea of bed rest in sickness, on the one hand, it makes sense if you really can't, right? Then you can't. But also these ideas of bed rest are common practices around um, responses to sickness and illness, you know, when people also were bloodletting and slapping leeches on people um, and, you know, feeding people we now understand to be poisonous substances as medical cures. So I think the idea of like absolute inactivity and bed rest as being optimal for the body isn't really maybe that ideal, but this is not a medical podcast. So regardless, I found a way to rationalize continuing to exercise, so I did it. And then, you know, twice a week I try to, to get in a lift. And actually I've been doing that consistently, so I can say I do get in a lift, and it's not complicated. I do a, a set, uh, four sets of five reps of deadlifts, and I do four sets of five reps of squats. And I do those on Wednesdays. Um, if I do, uh, you know, and I might do also a specific session running, maybe also on the bike, and then lift at the end of the day, and then I'll lift again on Sunday as I'll do long run, my long run. I'll spend time on the trainer, and then after the trainer in the afternoon, I'll get and, and do the lift. And so I decided, okay, I no longer feel like if I pick up something heavy, I'm just going to immediately pass out and, you know, crush myself to death when this weight comes crashing down all over the place. So I went in to do the lift and it just felt weird because it was like, okay, this really isn't hard. 
because I think usually I'm getting to these lift and I have more cumulative fatigue, right? And that changes how we feel. And so I'm lifting and I'm like, okay, and I did five sets. I even added an extra set for each exercise. And I did that and I was like, okay, I don't feel like I did anything. Like, but I said, I'm going to stop. You know, I'm not like obsessed with lifting, so I don't have this desire to just do as much as I can. I sort of think it's kind of a means to an end um, rather than like my actual target experience of exercise. But for me, the way I do it, it takes about five minutes. So it's not like it's, a, you know, it's not really a, it's not difficult to build that habit in. And then the next day I went out um, to run and I could, didn't feel any soreness, but I could feel on a more subtle level that fatigue, right? So even though the day before I would have sworn that, well, I didn't do anything, that was a non-effort, the next day the fatigue is there. And walking up the stairs, I could then really sense that. And when I started running, I could sense that. And it's subtle. And if you had been trained or encouraged or if you have just the adopted a mindset of mind over matter, you know, 90% mental, 10% physical, I think you would just block that out. And you wouldn't recognize that, okay, I've put enough stress on the muscular system, you know, even though it doesn't feel like that maybe at first glance, but when I really think about that. And to me, that's about being intuitive. And it's hard to know how hard is hard, right? Like, and we're also equating hard to being productive. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out what's productive in training because we want to get better because we're sort of saying that productive training, and I guess when we say we're sort of saying, I should correct that. Society, sporting society as a whole, sporting culture as a whole is saying that, you know, you're going to feel good when it's productive, and productive, we know it's productive because that leads to results, right? And that we organize training around things that we can measure as productivity. But you think about examples like behavioral and behavioral economics, you know, how do you use incentives to increase productivity? And trying to increase productivity is way more complicated than you might assume. You know, for example, a company put in an incentive where they rewarded uh, typists and secretary work, um, and they got paid based on how many keystrokes they did. So they they would sit at their lunch break and eat their sandwich and then just hit keys on the keyboard nonstop, right? So there's an example of an incentive saying, okay, here's how we can measure productivity, right? And, you know, working hard and feeling like we worked hard does that. You look in the kinds of, again, we've talked about how like social media and digital media, um, which social media is just people exhibiting behaviors that they've sort of engaged in, right? And then we start to imitate those behaviors more because that starts to then shape that dialogue. But you see a lot of stuff with younger people, um, you know, for example, lifting culture, I think has really benefited or maybe benefited isn't the right word, but it's really been impacted, I think, by the ability for people to share and show what they're doing. And as a consequence, people produce this stuff with certain narratives and those become emphasized. And the idea of 
like, well, you know, leg day and, here, and, you know, representations of not being able to walk, things that, you know, I might associate with, like, you know, over, just totally overreaching in training or going out and doing a race, you know, that you hadn't, you know, prepared for. When I did the 50K run at the Gravel Worlds in August of this year, that's what happened. It was just total overreaching, but I, you know, had that mindset of, okay, and I still have that mindset that, you know, you can go out and you can work within yourself, you know, and you can probably execute things. You just have to accept that you're maybe not going to go and do the objective performance that you want. But seeing that, right, these people, and that sort of becomes celebrated, and then that starts to become the standard, right, of are you totally wrecked the next day? And if so, that's, you're productive. And so by implication, anything less than that isn't productive. And so then you go one step further with what what is that implying? And it's implying that if you are working out and you're not working so hard that you're reaching failure, then it's not helpful. But see, if I had reached failure lifting, I don't know how, I would have had to do quite a number of additional sets or I would have had to throw on more plates and I don't have any more plates right now. Um, I wouldn't have been able to come back the next day and exercise. So how do I know based on how I feel if I'm training well? Because I think what I saw in this, you know, um, one micro case study, one exemplar, doesn't even maybe rise to the threshold of a case study, was that I, I did this exercise intervention. It didn't feel like much. And I walked away from it feeling sort of basically feeling like I didn't accomplish anything because it was not, it didn't feel significant. And then the next day I go and I do the, get to the run part of my training for the day and okay, yep, I did do something. So how do we know what to feel? And that's what we want to explore. And the reason why we're going to call this episode Learn to Fly is because that feeling that you can get to, to me, it's not runner's high. To me, it feels like you're flying. Where no matter what your actual velocity is relative to your historic bests, whether they're, you know, best, um, you know, power to weight ratio climbing on the bike, whether it's your best, you know, pace for a given race distance running, you know, whatever other context athletically you might be looking at, it's that feeling of flying. And that feeling of just like, becoming the machine, right? Where you're just in total control and you're just cruising and it doesn't matter how hard it gets. And it's like the fatigue is there, but it's, I got this, you know, get out of my way, right? I am coming through, you know, like a locomotive. And, you know, to somebody else, right? We might look like a toy train. I don't know, but that feeling that we have, Right, and I think that that's the feeling of flying, and that's what we're looking looking to get to, because that's the feeling. When we talk about feeling good, I think that's what we're talking about. It's a powerful feeling. It's a feeling that doesn't necessarily come, you know, from you know doing you know runs where you're maybe you know adding in elements of of fun. You know, take a selfie with every you know, fruit tree you see or, you know, whatever, I don't know, scavenger hunt runs and stuff like that, that the act of exercise itself, if we're doing it correctly, should feel good. And you should be able to start to feel powerful like that 
more often than not, five-sevenths of the time, I would say. And that's a different kind of concept than this, like, you know, blow your doors off, you know, push yourself to your limit, and then, you know, back off. And I think there's a, well, I don't think, I know that, you know, Jim Ryan has talked about or talked about in the past that when they were training in high school and they were doing their, you know, workouts, they're, they're 20 times a quarter, which when you know the history of the sport, you know, and Emil Zadepec is doing, you know, 40 or 60 times a quarter for, you know, the, the Jim Ryan story to be out doing 20 times a quarter, maybe not that crazy in that relative context, but that they, you know, he says they didn't consider the workout to have begun until it felt hard. And that's a really awesome, dramatic, exciting, heroic statement. And I also think it's like really horrible and destructive and misleading because it tells us that like feeling good again is the antithesis of what we're trying to achieve. And there's a lot of factors that make this complicated though, right? And when I say feel good, which I talked about a lot in episode one, uh, as suggesting is this a pathway or is this a stepping stone to a better experience? Um, you know, we want to think about this in a, in a dynamic way. For example, when we're training, it might not feel um, like we're doing that much with the same thing, but that that same thing could be variable on what we experience based on our cumulative fatigue. But can our expectations of how different conditions could affect us, is that also going to influence? And I, I think it would very likely do so, right? You know, but we're asking it as a question rather than just making, you know, assumptions completely. Can that also affect what we're going to feel when we start to do that? You know, if you have experience, you know, with hot weather leading to misery, does that make it more likely that you're going to be sensitive to struggle, right? Does that like anticipatory failure start to kick in? So to look at this, we're probably going to do this in multiple different segments. And as I think, you know, episode two was just a one segment episode to kind of try to bridge um, that space and, and try to emphasize that we're trying to be um, engaged with all these different disciplines. And that I think the value that we can find here, one of the values we're trying to find here is talking about all these different disciplines, that that's what's going to open the pathway to actually like making this, and this is sort of a, a high lofty goal maybe for the podcast, but to try to make this a space where ultimately we're talking about something that's unique and different in approach, right? And sometimes the scale of that difference might be subtle in certain areas and it might be dramatic in others. But when we combine that together, I think we're going to end up with something definably unique. Um, and that's why, again, I, I think that uh, having that, you know, Instagram at Black Cats Run is an important space because, you know, when we're talking about new ideas, you know, I hope that it's thought provoking for people. And I think hearing, you know, creating opportunities for dialogue is really meaningful and a part of what's 
frankly, fun is to, you know, hear and be able to respond to different points of view. So we're going to talk about why we don't trust our own feelings. We're going to talk about um, physiological models. What are some of these significant models? How do they work? How do they fit into this? How do they relate to being productive? And then how can they teach us and lead us to learn to interpret how we're feeling in certain ways and maybe also teach us to repress and not value how we feel in other ways? We're also going to talk about with these physiological models, what's the sort of scale of physiological equivalence by comparing some popular physiological training paradigms that really drive a lot of stuff in the world of running and then also drive stuff in cycling. And, you know, what do these models have in common? What kinds of conclusions can we reach from that about how we're learning how to train? Also want to talk about this idea that is going to sound totally unfamiliar because I think I might be sort of coining this phrase right now, but of improv training and what might that mean and try to give some, and I have some potential references for that that I think will be interesting and original to try to understand what could that mean as a concept. Then we want to progress to talking about how can you take these physiological findings and maybe link them instead of to these like metrics of productivity, but can we link them to metrics of intuition, right? How should we feel? Is there a connection between some of the takeaways of improv, improvised training, improvisational training versus, you know, these physiological models of training? And then try to get into the exit ticket component, which is how to listen to the body when we're doing something that's hard and how to listen to the body when we do something that's easy. And to try to think about how can we use a concept of feeling about exercise to help us better understand how to train hard, how to recover, and how to be productive, and how to use this to try to find a balance Right, And then what should that really suggest about what we should be measuring and looking for? So that's the scope of where we're going to go. And I think that that probably means that this episode is going to be multiple segments. And I think that opens up the door to diving a little bit more deeply into some of this stuff. Right, So we break it into these segments, but overall we can pursue, I think, a, a much more a meatier, weightier understanding and perspective. So let's go back to that first component, which is thinking about why don't we trust our feelings and why is it so difficult to engage with those? And I think that's something that we have to think about from a perspective that's more than just in the context of the act of working out or in the context of the act of racing. Because when we talk about feelings... Right? We're talking about emotions, we're talking about um, psychology, right? And feelings are there. And we have to kind of learn as people through life 
to interpret them and how to respond to them. And feelings, I think, don't automatically exist as this rational indicator, nor do I think that they're necessarily dropped down into that you know, logical-only category. I think that feelings are something that we have to kind of decide that we are going to react to. It's like our conscious self um, as people and then therefore also as athletes, we are always feeling things and having uh, experiences. And we're so in that sense, we're observing that stuff. So it's this interesting relationship. We are, we are as a consciousness, right? The conscious part of our mind is observing this thing that is coming from ourselves, but in some ways feels like it's not directly part of our consciousness because, you know, things that we feel, we don't necessarily consciously say, I will now experience feelings of happiness. I will now experience feelings of sadness. Those are brought out from us, right? And that's a part of what's powerful about art. And I think sport can, in that sense, also function as art, where we can witness other people doing sport. It can call up these interesting and complex feelings, just as art can do. And I think that our own sport, sporting experience can be a kind of art as well. And maybe it's not something that other people are seeing or reacting to, and maybe it is, but even we're out exercising, we're experiencing that as a kind of art. I, I like to consider athletics, if we're doing it well in a positive way, that it's also a form of creative self-expression. And there are lots of ideas in society as a whole about how we should react and think about how we feel. And there's obviously a whole spectrum to that experience. Some of us seem to just have or arrive at a really good relationship with the things that we feel and experience. And others of us, it's more of a struggle, right? And um, one end of that could be like the domain of, of mental health. And we talked about an example of how for people who go and achieve that Olympic ambition, right, or maybe, um, you know, in cycling, you know, maybe something like, you know, competing in, in the Tour de France, you know, or then coming to the end of that professional cycling career, having been able to reach that level. But the idea of that you've like climbed to the top of that mountain and it's like, well, there's a vista and that's nice, but what do I do now? Right, and that that feel that discipline thing can leave us feeling stranded. So, one of the spaces that can impact the feelings that we have can be the paradigms that we exist in. Right, so a discipline-oriented athlete, path of discipline athlete, is going to experience different feelings than a hedonistic, nihilistic, bacchanalist. You know, I'm just out here to have a good time, athlete. Right, but they both are really the same in that they're both looking for different ways to try to have a good time. They're both looking for different ways to feel significant. And I think what we can also say, though, is that society as a whole defines for us what kinds of feelings are and are not acceptable. And it's definitely a stereotype that still persists that uh, coaching. And I don't, to be clear, and I think it's important to be clear about this, I don't think this stereotype is valid. I do think that there are certain cultural factors that can affect this, and I'll give an example of one in a moment. But first, let's identify the stereotype. I think, you know, there's a stereotype um, that female athletes, 
are more sensitive um, and that women in general are more sensitive, right? And that comes from culture, right? And we talked about that example, you know, from, you know, Andrew Tate, which I can't believe I'm giving him two references, you know, here, but we have to acknowledge, you know, the things that are out there in the landscape and just acknowledging them isn't necessarily giving them power because we're critiquing them. But the assertion that women have feelings, feelings are for women, right? And that, you know, think about a hysterectomy. I mean, what does that mean, right? Hysterectomy, you know, hysteria. Basically, let's like remove the uterus to fix um, the emotional problems that we're defining as emotional problems of being a woman, right? And that doing this stuff, right, that that's the appropriate intervention, right? And that women are emotionally fragile. And I think all that stuff then culturally feeds into this perspective of like, well, female athletes, you know, high school female athletes, coaching high school girls is different. And I've heard this, you know, at all, from all kinds of different people. And it's one of those examples of like, wow, this is like what discrimination, in this case, a sexism form of discrimination. This is what discrimination is in in practice, is when you're looking at something and you're like, this is totally effed up, but everybody is saying it like it's totally normal. And then if you say something in contrast, then you look like, you know, you're wearing your coat backwards. You just seem to have no idea what you're, what you're talking about. And I think that one of the factors that's at play there is, and I've talked to some people who played uh, girls soccer, varsity girls soccer in high school, and we were having a conversation about this the other day, and they were talking about how, well, all of the, you know, there are so many girls on the team who really were like whiny or complainy or catty and all of these things, right? Very like stereotypical, like critiques of females, critiques of females as athletes, right? Having certain female feelings and that those feelings are getting in the way, right? Which I think is that discipline interpretation that the feelings interfere with their ability to be athletes, right? And then, you know, women, I presumably by that logic, can't be as athletic as men because what they don't, have the right, you know, kinds of feelings. And it was interesting to hear this coming from people who were participants in that, because you can also have this experience where even though like this is a sexist limiting narrative for the female participants, like we can, you know, you can still buy into the narrative that like is negatively representing or negatively reflecting on your identity. And, you know, one of the things that I hypothesized in this conversation, I said, well, like, why are people experiencing that? I mean, soccer is a sport, you know, that requires fitness too. And, you know, perhaps requires more fitness than people realize. It's way more of an endurance aerobic sport. I mean, many sports have more endurance aerobic components um, than you would think based on the kinds of like conditioning or fitness protocols reflected for that. And I said, well, you described to me how in like the mile or the two mile time trial at the beginning of the season that people basically couldn't run that. And I said, do you think that maybe like what's happening is that people are getting so tired in practice and in games that as happens when we're tired is like our complex of emotions and feelings and our psychology is changing. And like under that strain of fatigue and stress, like we become increasingly irritable, right? Just like a runner who's dehydrated, 
is going to start to get very chippy, right? Or a cyclist who, you know, misses their feed is going to be a little bit, you know, BSed about that happening, right? And that, like, these things can influence us, right? And does uh, that lack of fitness, right, contribute to a different set of feelings? And when we take that kind of as an example, I think that's an example of, like, we're not processing the fact that those feelings are also a metric of data, training data. They're telling us, right, that there is this need. They're telling us that, okay, these people are getting tired, they're getting depleted, and they're becoming irritable. And then as maybe a season goes on, that fatigue is sort of there so much that what's happening, people start to build a negative association with that, with going to practice or, or playing the games because they have, that's been what's been happening all along. And then, right, it's the grappling with trying to understand that, that, you know, if there's this silencing effect of discipline, then it's, you can't talk about being tired, right? Or you've learned that that's not the answer, right? Because fatigue, you know, is in a way an act of cowardice, right? You know, according to the Vince Lombardi logic, and we need to go and we need to move beyond that. And so then we start to see this expressing itself where we're trying to blame this thing on things that it isn't because it's not acceptable to talk about what it might actually be. And so what we're saying um, is that we need to know how to feel in order to have a better experience, both in terms of like feeling good, in terms of this is subjectively like a worthwhile thing. And like, I want to spend time on this today. Like I'm eager to do that. And I would be bummed out if I don't get to do it. Not it's like I'm doing this because of, you know, the long-term benefit, but the actual act of doing it is just, you know, right, ritualistic sacrifice. And that we're saying that feeling better and feeling good and better performance, that these are the same thing. Probably if those soccer athletes right, had a better level of conditioning, they would have felt better in practice, they would have felt better in competition, they would have, you know, had been more relaxed and at ease, and they would have related better to one another, and, you know, overall. But instead, when we apply that sort of non-explanation of, well, you know, females have more feelings than males, you know, what does that really mean, right? And conversely, you know, I would say for males... You know, the idea of not articulating feelings is just as and maybe more unhealthy. Like, I think maybe you're better off articulating what you think you're feeling or trying to articulate what you're feeling, even if it's inaccurate, than you are not saying that anything, saying anything at all. You know, and I've certainly, in my experience, feel that I've suffered the consequence of telling myself in so many different contexts, like, that's not real, I don't need to whatever, and just like ignoring things and like I need to go out again and train and like so often that's where problems come from and then you after the fact people bemoan and say oh man if only I had thought about such and such and I think we're also saying that you know training and racing then exist on a continuum right and they're not these two separate things as much as we like to think they are right and a, a training model where, you know, a, a 
non-feeling training model where people are like, okay, let's look at um, what we're doing here in terms of a reflection of the race. And we need to build up or the competition, right? And we need to like build up through a series of specific sessions that build up our tolerance until we can as closely as possible tolerate this, like culminating in some sort of like a peak, right? Where we're now we're at the level and then we're going to transfer that over. And I think that's why, um, you know, we see, you know, younger athletes being held out of competition, which is like the whole point of this stuff is to do the competitions. And then like, you're going to have feelings, right? Where you're going to do competitions and it's not going to meet your expectations. And learning how to engage with that is important. And I encourage people that I talk to now, people that I've talked to in the past, and it was a mindset that I tried to bring into play as a team, is like, we race. In outdoor track, um, the distance runners, the group that I worked with, the middle distance and distance runners, if it was a, a, a weekday meet, which were usually through two or three teams, a dual meet or a tri meet, everybody raced the mile, the half mile, and the four by four. We might have four four by fours going at the meet because you're going out there and you're experiencing the feelings of racing and that it's not something to be avoided. Do you want to engage in that just as much as you want to engage in acts of training and that the psychosocial, um, emotional experience of that is just as valid because it exists on a continuum, right? And, and that's what you're trying to do. You're not trying to keep yourself away from racing because racing is toxic or dangerous when you do that that's how you racing becomes toxic and dangerous because you're you're teaching yourself that the feelings and the experience of racing is this thing that's more than it is and it's incorrect to assume that you're going to build somebody into this like ideal performance um at the end of a cross country season and if you as a coach don't know how to have athletes race throughout the season and then compete at the championship meet or meets, then I would argue you don't understand the sport and you don't know how to coach the sport. Because you're trying to do all these workouts that target the demands of racing, but you don't want to actually do the racing because you think the racing is bad. So how does it make sense to do workouts that are specific to the act of racing as specific as possible and to like rationalize the workouts as somehow being even more specific to racing than racing is. But then, no, no, we can't race at all. You know, I mean, that's an example of, well, because the workouts can be super controlled and disciplined and manufactured and engineered, and it really all is all, all about the coach. Whereas when the race, you're relinquishing that control as a coach. But you need to relinquish that control because the point of the coach is to teach people about what we're trying to feel and what we're trying to experience. And so this mentality of coaching, right, is teaching us to not trust our feelings because we don't know how to engage with those, right? You know, and if we're upset and frustrated, you know, it's like a lot of the reaction is stop, don't feel like that. And I think it's like, it's fine to feel upset and frustrated, right? That intensity of, of feeling, whether those are negative or positive, those are a part of the sport, and that's, a, that's like transferable value, by the way, experiencing frustration and learning how to cope with that and overcome that. That's constructive, right? So what you want to do is you want to you know, learn how do you respond to that because you're also going to experience like adversity in training, right? You're not always going to have you know, 
the perfectly uh, managed level of fatigue and to be able to go out and be like, I'm still out here and this is fun, even though my legs are heavy, right, or whatever, I recognize that feeling, adjust accordingly, you can keep that positive. And I know some very intuitive people. And I, I think that, and maybe I should preface by saying, I think one thing that this starts to look at and people who are really good at this, and this is a little like looking ahead to that improvisational training thing, um, I know some very intuitive people. And ironically, these are people who are less interested um, or at least are reluctant to talk in front of an audience about what they think. You know, and is that true that people who are more in tune with themselves are also less likely to talk about what they think? Because I think they end up arriving at a set of ideas and understandings that are very different from what that standardized um, expectation of training is. Like a lot of people go into forums like a podcast or write captions on social media. I see this all the time. They say the same generic things. They repeat these same list of truisms. But these people who I know who are so intuitive about sport, they're training in ways that are not fitting those traditional patterns. Okay, They're experiencing and reacting to a set of metrics that are specifically predicated on how do I feel and sure, they're making mistakes, but so is everybody else. That's a part of sport. And they're also having a lot of success. And some instances they're having success that's way outside of um, the envelope of what you think would make sense. right? That by the logic and, and the paradigms and the physiological paradigms that we'll talk about later in this you know, multi-segment episode, that they're just not having that success. You know, and we've made the argument, right, you know, that the, there's an impact of long-range, surprisingly long-range historic and cultural forces. And those enforce norms on us. And I think it can also make people who are arriving at a different approach and have sort of come to be more intuitive about this stuff, it can make it difficult to kind of want to talk about that because you have to then engage with all of that stuff. You know, and I think there are other examples of trying to train by how we feel that I just think are ridiculous. Um, you know, Ryan Hall apparently went through a phase where he woke up and he knew how to train every day because God was telling him what to do. Um, and I think that is just absurd. I mean, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, but was that, you know, if you dig a little deeper, what was actually going on there? Because there was no God talking to him, telling him how to train. Um, but was this like actually a, was he sort of getting at a mechanism of maybe like, I need to think about how I'm feeling more, right? And maybe if he had explored that a little bit more and been a little bit more rational about that, maybe that could have helped. Um, you know, or like when my brother talks about, um, you know, he's somebody I know who, and he's the person I think who actually gave me this phrase recently of improv training. People talk about improv training, like how is that a mechanism, right? But he'll also talk about training zones too, right? So it's not this like rejection of of physiology and ideas of training and an idea of having like things and perceiving there to be real benefit to it, but it's a way of thinking about it that the rules aren't coming from this abstract set of physiological rules. And I think a part of what we can say at this point, when we think about why don't we trust our feelings more as athletes, 
it's because if we try to just go in the route of pursuing instant gratification, that's not going to get us where we want. It is true that just sort of jumping on whatever is instant, instantly gratifying isn't necessarily having a benefit. Like the outcomes of that are going to be all over the place, right? I mean, when I first started coaching cross-country team, we had a problem where there was a cohort of people um, because the culture of the team, I guess, was like pretty negative and disengaged, um, who they were going to one kid's house every day for the allotted time and just playing video games and drinking sodas and coming back. And, you know, it was hard to basically police that behavior, believe it or not, um, because kids are very creative about getting what they want. But there was a natural consequence to that was that when they went to the races, they basically stunk and it was miserable. And, you know, over time, you know, we changed the norms of behavior and of that space, not by like necessarily punishing people, like the natural consequences had their way. And then as more people were starting to have like a positive, good feeling, a more like profoundly like rewarding, good feeling from engaging with this stuff in the way that I started kind of pushing us and moving the group towards those behaviors went away because we shifted that opportunity cost. And I think that in general, opportunity cost is one piece of what is going to make it so difficult for us to trust our feelings as athletes. Because learning to fly, right, and sort of being set free to experience this in this more elevated, maybe more meaningful way and a, a better which is both better experience and performance because they're not separate things training and racing are all a part of one continuum of sport experience that learning how to think about our feelings is really difficult there's lots of books about physiology i can't think of a single book that just focuses on intuitive training in any kind of way that's, you know, had that kind of like impact uh, or imprint on sporting culture for cycling or for running or for anything else. I think that kind of gets pushed to the side as this voodoo. But I think feelings are real, right? They're coming from a physiological place, right? There's neurochemistry behind that. You know, just because we don't have, have the tool, like Steve Magnus says, I think this is such a good articulation of this concept that like we gravitate to the things that we can most easily measure. And our physiological models aren't based on the ultimate best understanding of physiology because maybe in some at the end of the day, maybe our feelings are also physiology. They're based on the few things that we can measure right now. And I think when you explore the physiology side of this stuff, you start to realize pretty quickly that there's a pretty limited understanding to this point and that and that's not a bad thing it just means that there's more room to explore but that the opportunity cost is well we're getting directives about like you know listen to your body you know it should feel good but like what does that mean right that might be coming from somebody else for whom it comes easily like we talked about the contrast of you know if you're assigning a workout session to different athletes you know, one person could be out there functioning at, you know, physiologically closer to VO2 max. Another person could be out there, you know, trending more towards aerobic threshold. And if you tell both of them this should feel good, 
Well, now they're encoding totally conflicting sensations as the meaning of feeling good. And then they're going to take that in different directions. And I think this says a lot to the importance of communication and coaching and mentorship. Because maybe it's not even so much trusting our feelings, but it's about developing an interpretation, a rational interpretation of the things that we feel that works well enough that we can come to trust it. So that's it for this first segment. Um, We're going to come back with segment 1B. Again, feel free to follow on the Instagram at Black Cats Run. Um, That's a space where, you know, we'll post things periodically if we start to get people following on there um, where people can talk about what is interesting um, to them, what do they want to hear about, points of view that they think should be represented. Maybe they have pieces of research or other ideas um, that they want to throw out there and add to that, right? As we add evidence, we gain more insight. Catch you next time.